Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know, Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Were we required to characterise this age of ours by any single epithet, we should be tempted to call it the mechanical age, the age of machinery. Nothing is now done directly or by hand, all is by rule and calculated contrivance. For the simplest operation, some helps and accompaniments, some cunning abbreviating process is in readiness. On every hand, the living artisan is driven from his workshop to make room for a speedier inanimate one. The shuttle drops from the fingers of the weaver and falls into iron fingers that ply it faster. Now that was the 19th century historian Thomas Carlyle writing in 1829. Tom Holland, the Industrial Revolution, even for somebody who spends all his time thinking about Christianity and the classical world, this is a pretty seismic subject, isn't it? Do you not think it's kind of the biggest? I mean, I think it's certainly the biggest topic that we've covered so far, which is why we're going to try and do yeah. it in 50 minutes. But I mean, in terms of the, of its impact... On us, the on the planet? On, the, on, yeah. on us and on the planet. And actually, it's interesting, because I remember uh, 10 years ago listening to an In Our Time on the Industrial Revolution. It was a two-parter. Yeah. And the reason that I remember it is that... Um, Melvin Bragg got into a, a tremendous row with one of the contributors. And basically it was about whether the Industrial Revolution was, was due to kind of vast impersonal forces or whether it was due to um, great men inventing things. The genius uh, of the, the English inventor. No, the, but specifically <laughs> the genius of northern working class people like Melvin Bragg. And he, right. he, was, he was very cross that, uh, right. at, at any implication that it hadn't been down to them. And at one point was smashing, bringing his fist down on the table and shouting, rubbish! We it's, should do more of that in our own podcast. It's, 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 a, it's a fantastic listen. And I, I listened to it again last night in preparation for this. And it was just as entertaining as I remembered. But the thing that struck me was that there wasn't a mention of, of global warming or um, yeah. the, the, the kind of environmental impact of the Industrial Revolution. So I think that, that within the past decade, our sense of how important the Industrial Revolution is has sped up. So 
I'm very, very, very excited about having someone who can answer that question. You know, are we right in thinking that the Industrial Revolution, probably since the Agrarian Revolution, is the single biggest event in human history? Do we have someone who can answer that question, Dominic? We need a top, top. We've had top historians before. We need a top, top historian. So we need somebody who's professor of modern British history at UEA, who is editor of the Historical Journal, who is the president of the Royal Historical. So basically... It somebody doesn't get topper than that. That's the top no, of No, somebody it. who's won history. And we have that person. It's Emma Griffin. Emma Griffin, you are the victor of history. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> um, so, Tom, you have a question, don't you? Well, you I do. Basically, it's, it's a reformulation of the question that I was just asking. I think it's <laughs> Vessi Dutois. Dutois. It's Dutois. Dutois. Uh, and he is quoting Hobsbawm, who said the Industrial Revolution was probably the most important event in world history. Was he right, Emma? Is he right? Well, I mean, I think all historians are going to try and make some big (laughs) claims about the particular corner of the past that they study and claim it to be extremely important. Um, Is the I mean, I think the Industrial Revolution is phenomenally important, um, and I do think it's. I I think, unlike a lot of what any historian is looking at, um, you can you can truly say the Industrial Revolution is a turning point in human history. It's it's even a turning point. Um, as you're saying, I mean, and that's enough. I mean, a turning point in human, a, a genuine turning point in human history is amazing. Um, it also is a turning point in planetary history. I think we're now understanding that in terms of the Earth, it's also a turning point. Um, I think, I think it is the the the, the most important, or you know, I, it, it's a huge significance. Why is it a huge significance? Before the Industrial Revolution, most people in agricultural societies, and let's not think about hunter-gatherer societies. You've already mentioned this. The, you know the, the switch to agriculture which is um uh, uh, you know the one that's prior i mean nobody goes from hunter gathering to industrial revolution so let's just compare ourselves with these agricultural societies that existed previous to the industrial revolution everybody's poor you have a few really rich people it doesn't matter whether you're looking at a rich state like uh you know renaissance italy or you're looking at the greeks the romans these hugely successful empires or if you're looking at a a much less um developed nation even in these richest of pre-industrial nations, most people are poor. You have a few very rich people um, and everybody else has one set of clothes, one pair of shoes. If they have any shoes, a lot of people won't have shoes, obviously. Um, one set of clothes and a constant anxiety and struggle to put enough food on the table for everybody in the household. And that is what changes when we have industrial revolutions. We go from situations of plentitude, which doesn't mean that every person, every household in every industrial nation has abundant food because we know things like food banks exist and we know there's a problem in getting food to people who need it. But as societies and as nations, we do have abundance. We have switched this uh, situation that humans have known since the beginning of time of scarcity and moved to one of abundance and plentitude. And that's really um, a phenomenal change and one that's really worth talking about. So if we go back to the absolute basics, um, the, I mean, one of the weird things with the Industrial Revolution is it seems so vague and such a sort of amorphous process. When does it start, would you say? Okay. What's the 1700, 1600? You know, what's the kickoff? That's brilliant. So, OK, so we've got this big, big shift in our our, our, our human existence from this kind of experience of scarcity to an experience of more abundance when does it happen well it's not one of those revolutions that happens on the 27th of january in a particular year it's it's a very different kind of revolution that takes a long time to happen but it starts in britain um 
So we can we can we can pinpoint it on the globe in a particular place. It spreads out from Britain out to other parts of Europe to um, North America, Australia. And, and Emma, also yes. I mean that that is. That is still accepted, is it, that Britain is the home of the Industrial Revolution? Because I know that, that, that revisionism claims every aspect of history. Uh, is, is, is there any kind of move to say, well, actually, it's not really Britain? Okay, I think, no, I think everyone's happy to accept that it starts not only in Europe, but that it actually does start in Britain. And that hasn't been revised. I think what, where the revisionism comes in is, is, is people saying... Um, at that moment, it could have been another part of the world that did industrialise. There's always been this hypothetical counterfact. It could have been China. Could it? Could it have been? Could it have been China? Do you think? Well, I think um, it was rather unlikely to have been China because I think actually Britain was different from other parts of Europe and certainly different from other parts of the world. Um, so, in terms of revisionism, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to put my I'm going to say no. I don't think there are many um, many people claiming today. That the industrial revolution might have happened, uh, that the industrialization did actually happen somewhere else first. I think everyone is is happy right. to accept that. The debates are that it might have happened somewhere else, um, and we can come back to those if you like, Tom. I'm not yeah, entirely absolutely. convinced that it could have happened somewhere else, but it's only a might have, not a not a. It actually did. So we're looking at Britain. When does it start? I mean, I think we're looking at the. Um, by the, the very end of the 18th century, it's clear that things in Britain, Britain is developing and the economy is operating in slightly different ways to its European neighbours. Um, so that's kind of, there are clear signs by the end of the century. By the 1820s and by the 1830s, I think it's very clear that the British economy is, ha- is operating in a different way. So I'd kind of, I'd want to put it somewhere between the late 18th and the early 19th century. Um, but so it has very long than roots. I was... Yeah. You've gone later than I was expecting. I thought you would say 1700 or okay. even earlier, actually. Well, it depends what you think the Industrial Revolution is. So for me, the Industrial Revolution is, I mean, well, let's start with the pre-industrial societies. How do they work? Well, everybody needs something to eat. So you, you grow your food. In addition, we all need stuff, particularly in the northern, northern cold climates. We need clothes. We need shoes. We need buildings. We want bits of transport to get us around and about. Uh, we want to ride horses, so we need saddles. So we want the stuff as well. And so it's that manufacturing is where the Industrial Revolution happens. It's on making the stuff rather than on the food. Um, but that stuff, all the other things, that also actually has to come out of the ground. So if, it, if, you, if you want to wear a leather pair of shoes, that's agriculture because you need to you know, get your leather off the animal skins. If you want to wear woolen clothes, that's sheep that you're getting your, your clothes off. If you want to wear um, any other kind of clothes, linen, linen is grown, um, cotton, cotton is grown. They're all, exactly, it all comes out of the soil. So your buildings, that's all comes out of wood that you've chopped down. Your fuel, that all comes from, again, the wood that you need, that you need to maintain woodland. So everything, everything comes back to the soil. Everything comes back to the earth. And that really, that's why everyone's poor, because there's never enough good good things coming out of your local environment for everybody to be rich and have this life of plenitude. So it's when we start to do things differently and we start to use other people's resources, so cotton from all other parts of the world, and we start to use things like coal and steam engines, so we're no longer dependent on wood, we can just shove coal in. Later in the, society, in the century, people are using electricity from all sorts of different ways. It's when you start to kind of become far less dependent on your local environment and when you have these these kind of much more complex economies um, with much bigger tentacles 
that stretch across the globe and you can use other people's resources. For me, that's what the Industrial Revolution is about. So, that is all kind of happening around the 19th century. So, so I mean, this may sound, I'm sure this must be a naive question, but, but if that's the case, why does it not happen earlier? Why, why, why for instance, does the Roman Empire not industrialise or, or the Chinese Empire? I mean, these are entities that have very, very kind of long tentacles. Why, why, why is I mean, is, is this a kind of inevitable process? Is it luck? What is it that, that lights the spark? Right. Well, that's it. So obviously there have been other rich nations in the past, but they're still basically doing the same thing as I'm describing pre-industrial societies mostly do. Almost everything that is consumed or used comes out of the local environment in some way. Partly because transport, just, even if you've got an empire, you can't afford to get stuff from one part of the world to another using these primitive transport techniques so you're kind of dependent on your own little part of the world um and, and having an empire being rich doesn't necessarily change any of that so what's going on in britain and again it probably comes back to the china question as well why was it in britain rather than in china or somewhere else because britain all through the 18th century is working really 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 hard um to do things differently to make a little bit more money it's a very commercial nation um, it's a uh, it's a very commercialised nation already, and so people are no longer. We've moved a very long way away from a peasant society where most people have their little plot of land and they're literally growing and producing everything. I mean, you know, in, in other parts of Europe at this point, people are growing the flax that will make their clothes. So they're not just growing their own agriculture; they're growing what they're going to dress themselves in. Um, and all their fuel is coming from their own local plot of land. So this is not the case in England at this point. We've got away from that kind of peasant manufacture, that kind of, that, that kind of everybody with their little plot producing what they need for the next winter, the next 12 months kind of scenario. And we've got people with much larger farms. They employ lots of workers. The tasks have all been subdivided. Um, Britain has got an empire. It's pulling lots of raw resources raw materials in from other parts of the world. So it's got a good woolen industry. We don't have enough wool, so it's importing lots of wool. Um, we're importing lots of flax and, and hemp because we want to produce linens, but we don't grow enough material for that. We're starting to um, import lots of cotton. That's one of the big stories, importing more and more cotton. So it's already a very sophisticated, it's a very sophisticated economy. For what is still a traditional economy, it's very sophisticated economy and it, it's, it's travelled a long distance away from the kind of peasant origins of agricultural societies. So we had a couple, lot, some questions from listeners about the origins of the Industrial Revolution. So um, you mentioned the empire. Stefan Jensen, um, friend of the show, always asking questions, asked uh, too many questions on our Watergate episodes, according to Ireland. <laughs> to uh, be we'll told off. off. Give him another one. Uh, he's asked a question about concentration and scale. Um, enabled by the empire. I mean, Britain wasn't the only country with an empire. I mean, obviously, Spain had had a colossal empire with tons of gold in the 16th century and had failed to industrialise. So what is it about Britain? Or, or is there anything about Britain's empire that makes it... Also, if I could just ask about the Netherlands, which which is an even more sophisticated economy than Tom, Britain's. Tom is obsessed it? with the Netherlands. <laughs> well, it's a great name. Them. Holland is a, obviously a fantastic name. <laughs> <laughs> so... so, so, so I mean, that's, that's what I'm really interested in, is why does it happen in Britain and not, say, in the Netherlands, which in the 17th century is a much more sophisticated 
economy is that you know and the spanish thing so so why does it not why is it not spain why is it not the netherlands why is it britain yes lovely all brilliant questions and hello stefan nice to um nice to <laughs> get, a, get a question from you i'm glad the industrial revolution interests you as much as other topics that have been um discussed on the program i think it's a really you know exact empires abound World history is full of empires. It's not full of nations that have industrial revolutions, um, particularly the world's first industrial revolution. So empires in and of themselves are not causes of the industrial revolution. But the empire does play a really big role in why Britain is able to industrialise. And I think it comes back again, in some ways, it does also link back to the why not the Netherlands? You know, why not? Um, why not Portugal and Spain? They had these huge empires. I mean, you know, what was going on there? Well, empires provide raw materials and they you, you can flow these raw materials from other parts of the world into your country. And that's what they've always done. And the, the Portuguese and the Spanish did that and the Romans were doing that and the Chinese have done that with empires as well. You can, you can bring raw, raw materials back into your nation. Um, and that's useful and that's enriching but it's not what an industrial revolution is an industrial revolution is when you have a completely different approach to raw materials um, and to the things that you want so it's not just having the raw materials that's going to be significant um, it, it, it's something that's innate in Britain it's something that's kind of internal indigenous to Britain in that Britain doesn't want to have gold so that people can build a country house and then go and retire into the country um, and live a life of um, luxury and nobility and idleness. The whole point of being rich and having these kind of trading networks that Britain has got in the 18th century is to grow rich and to make more money and to invest and to, to grow and, and not to retire from business, but to develop the business and to enrich, to just carry on this process. And that kind of is up and down the economy at all levels everybody's kind of working most people are working for wages the point is to earn a bit more um and to just to accumulate money accumulate wealth accumulate capital and that's not true of empire imperial nations necessarily some people simply accumulate because they then want to put it on display not because they want to make it work so i think that's part of the story um what's very interesting in the case of britain is um, i don't think it was having the empire that caused us to industrialise, but because we are this different kind of nation that wanted to make profit at all points in through the 18th century, what we do with our empire is completely different. We don't just get gold and hoard it, we get cotton, <laughs> which is just a raw plant, and we're importing masses of... Red it would be useless if you didn't have anything you could do with it. What, what the British are doing are importing that raw material and then manufacturing it and then selling it across the rest of the globe and making a really healthy profit. And that, that form of behaviour is very different um, to, to, to the empire. So the empire is massively useful for Britain. It wasn't the cause. Britain turns around the idea of what you do with an empire and, and, and just uses it in a very different way. I would say that's that's how I see so, it. So you're sort of saying it comes back to, I mean, we had a couple of questions. For example, ATN Caswell asks about government policy. Are you basically saying it's a question of political and cultural kind of climate that yes. drives the... So that's quite old-fashioned, right? It's quite kind of, I don't want to say Weberian, but you're sort of saying... Is, well, it's, it's, it's Braggian. You're, you're not going to... It's our top, <laughs> our top inventors. 
Um, stop citing our rival, Tom. It's not right. Um, so you're, are you saying it's kind of Protestant work ethic, uh, polite and commercial people, yeah. that kind of stuff, basically? That, well, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And I think it is political and cultural. I think there is... I think Britain is culturally different and behaving in a culturally different way. Um, I think that a lot of those arguments in the past about the Protestant worth ethic and the polite and commercial people, um, I think a lot of those are very approving um, of this particular ethic and, and very unquestioning and very uncritical um, and take it as a the, the kind of historically has been taken as a natural good that if you were innovating and if you were profit making, then you were uh, on the side of progress in some kind of way. And these are these are good things. And I think part of our understanding um, o- over the past decade or more with global warming and the kind of the, the environmental impacts is I, I, I don't think we've got such an easy and relaxed attitude now that industrialization is naturally a good thing. And therefore, that the people who are driving forward it are naturally heroes um and benefactors and 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 good people in some kind of way i think we have much, I, I would i probably have a much more ambivalent um interpretation of whether this is a good or a bad thing but i, I do think it is cultural I, I do think i mean another alternative way of, of putting it is is capitalism is that we're a very capital and again i mean do you think capitalism is a good thing or a bad thing i mean some people like it some people don't but we we are very 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 capital oriented, wage oriented, money oriented, accumulating. I mean, I don't know if these are good things or bad things, but we were doing more commercial money making activity across the board than other parts of Europe at this time. But, but Emma, just just to go back to the Netherlands, because mm. he's obsessed. I told no, you. I did fudge but, it. I didn't answer you but, about but, the but, Netherlands. But they, so have they, another go. They, they they are Protestant. They are a commercial people. They have an empire with raw materials. They're very keen on you know, getting richer in reinvesting. So why why did they not have the industrial? I mean, is can it I, is it I down to raw in, materials? Is it about, about coal? They don't have coal. Yeah. Is, so is it is it coal basically? Coal. Is 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 that the the key? Do you think? Okay. So I I would yes yes. So let's go back to the Netherlands. So it is something to do with. I mean, I guess the coal is like the empire. Um, Lots of people have coal. Having coal is not enough to give you an industrial revolution. And, and in our own case, the coal had always been there. I mean, it had literally been there for millions of years. Um, <laughs> so having coal, and China has coal, and India has coal, and Russia has coal, other places have coal, and they didn't industrialize at this time. So um, it, it's not the having of the coal, I think, that's important. Um, what we're doing in Britain at this particular time is trying to get the coal out of the ground, which is technically really difficult. So you need a fairly skilled workforce. You need a capitalised economy. You need people with deep pockets who can take risky investments. You need skilled workers who will put their lives at risk trying to do this. You need entrepreneurs. You need inventors who will risk trying to come up with a new way of doing this. That's just to get the coal out of the ground. Then you've got to make the coal do something useful, which means inventing some kind of steam engine and making the steam engine do what you do. So there are these thousands and thousands and thousands of intermediate intermediary steps. So there's the coal over there. We had it. Other people had it too. What we also had was this additional thing, this desire to make a profit, which meant we worked really hard to do something useful with that coal. So let's go back to the Netherlands. What's going on in the Netherlands? Well, they don't have the coal. So it was always going to be more of a challenge. 
But I'm never entirely convinced um, by arguments that suggest you need this resource or that resource. Because the whole point is every prior to industrialization, every economy is really working with the resources that it does have. And if you're really ready to do things in a different way, you'll usually there'll be something there. I mean, it doesn't hold it doesn't hold the Netherlands back today, the fact that it doesn't have any coal. No, there are no. other routes. There are other routes. And if the Netherlands had really been at that moment in the 17th century where it could have done things differently, it would have done we would have had a completely different industrial revolution which didn't involve coal but involved something else instead. They just didn't want it. They just didn't want it enough. <laughs> didn't want it enough. So, so, so actually going back to the, uh, the Melvin Bragg point about, um, you know, great inventors and entrepreneurs and all that kind of thing. Actually thinking that we did an episode on um, Silicon Valley and I was kind of thinking about, uh, you know, Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs and all these kind of guys who were, were there's kind of cluster of people who were just into that kind of thing. They were just, you know, it was what you did. And I wonder, was, was there something about Britain in the 18th century that people just like kind of tinkering with machines? And I mean, was it kind of for the fun of it? I, I, th- I think there, I mean, it's really interesting. The question of invention is really interesting. There definitely is a culture of tinkering with machines. But when you look closely, and I spend a lot of time looking closely at individuals, although we've been talking really generally about this massive shift in world history and plenitude, you know, Actually, what I do most of the time is look at the lives of individuals, one person here and one person there, just really small scale. When you look at the lives of people who are doing inventing, for example, yes, they like tinkering, um, but tinkering is really expensive. It's really expensive. And Steve Jobs, if he was still with us, would I'm sure say exactly the same thing. You have to devote a huge part of your life to putting in a massive amount of time and effort to doing this thing that may not make you any profit um, and often doesn't make any profit for a really long time. Because even if you manage to crack it with your invention, your invention is not going to work very well in the first instance and it's going to be really expensive and it's going to be much cheaper for most people to just carry on employing a secretary than it is to install a computer. And I suppose you know, also somebody might nick it. Somebody might exactly. nick your invention. Uh, uh, to say nothing of the fact somebody might nick it. I mean, yeah. it just goes on and on and on and on and on. It's really expensive and there's no guarantee of reward. So some societies and places can support people mucking around with this kind of activity, and some can't. A peasant economy cannot afford to have people uh, absenting themselves from the labour market for a few years on end and not being economically productive I mean, it just doesn't, it, it just isn't, it, it just can't sustain that kind of activity. Um, and there's no investors, even if you come up with a great idea, there'll be no investor because investors don't want to invest money in risky um, inventions because that's not how things are done in that part of, you know, in that, in that particular community, that society. So where were we? Um, I think you know what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yes. do we have to have the scientific revolution first then, do you think as well? Um, so, yeah. So sort of. So it, there's lots of things. There's lots of things coming into it. So certainly having a kind of educated, you know, a relatively educated society, a scientifically inclined society, one that's interested in research and investment. But you also just need a fairly rich society with money, mm. with cash flowing around. You need a society yeah. where cash is present and people can 
earn relatively good wages. Maybe they could save a bit of money. They can take some risks. They can find some pals who also got a bit of money, who are also willing to take some risks. You just need a society which has some money around. So I don't think it's, I mean, you, you, you kind of seem to think I want to say something about, um, well, let, well, you don't. Let's think about the, the Braggian idea of the kind of the noble entrepreneur um, yeah. with, the, with the genius. Um, I, I'm not really saying that's what it is. I'm just saying uh, we like lucre. We like, the, we like the money. I mean, I'm not saying this is good or bad. <laughs> yeah. This is just yeah. how it was. Well, yes, <laughs> you've got to have a certain degree of income to be yes. able to... So how this podcast works? <laughs> yes. how, how does the podcast work? Is so, it ingenuity? So, is it genius? <laughs> just Tom's desire for money. That's all it is. That's, all it is. That's what drives it. So Emma, yeah. just, I, I think we should have a break in a minute and, and come back and look at the kind of some of the individual lives, the lived experience, all that kind of thing, how, how, how it, life changed for people who lived through the Industrial Revolution. Can I just ask one further macro question, which is the role that's played by war? because the Industrial Revolution is coinciding with war between Britain and revolutionary France. And two questions, really. Does that have an impact on the industrialization of Britain? So that I'm guessing the Royal Navy is a kind of a massive centre for innovation. And the second question is, um, had the, say, say had Britain lost, had, had, had the French occupied uh, Britain, would that have cramped the process of the Industrial Revolution? So I think, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Sorry, that's a very too massive. <laughs> no, no, I love it. Job. I love it. I'm just thinking, how can I, how can I respond to this? If we think about what industrialization is doing, so part of it is, is very. I mean, what's happening? You're just outgrowing your own resources. And that's what's happening in Britain, and a lot of Europe is outgrowing its own resources. It wants more stuff, um, because if you're going to have factories and if you're going to make profit, and you're you're going to have successful businesses. You need lots of raw materials. And these small, we're with, these, all these nations in Northern Europe, we're very small geographically. Um, there's just not a lot of resources and a lot of stuff to work with. So you're going to need other people's stuff. And that means uh, you're probably going to get drawn into conflict in other parts of the world because a lot of what's going on through the um, late 18th and the early 19th century is kind of, struggle over trade routes and access to resources. Um, so I think warfare is part of the story of industrialization. It, it's hard to see how you could have had harmonious, happy, everybody just industrializes because everybody wants more stuff. They want it, take it from other people and there's going to be kind of lots of conflict. And so we see that, we see that. Building up the Navy, um, well, that obviously is quite expensive in and of itself. Um, I, I don't want to say there's no way that Britain could have lost the French Revolutionary Wars. Um, it could have lost the Revolutionary Wars. But I think a lot has been happening in terms of the British government very astutely all through the 18th century, taking a very active role in supporting British business by keeping an eye open on what's happening in other parts of the world and investing in the Navy. Britain was the, the British economy was more developed in the 18th century by the end of the 18th century than the French economy was, which was still mostly agricultural, still had a lot of big pockets of mostly peasant farming and peasant agriculture, and was just generally much less capitalised and much less money uh, sloshing around France. Now, France is a bigger country, it's got a bigger population, which is why it can kind of, partly why it can be successful in quite a lot of wars, uh, because it's got a lot of people 
Um, and that's 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 really useful. And and bigger 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 populations tend to be richer before industrial revolutions, and then of course that breaks down yeah, in modern societies. So, um, what am I saying? We were always going to win. I come win. Well, we weren't always going to win. That's not quite what we're saying, but. It's not entirely accidental that we win. Um, It's not a fluke of history. It wasn't the turn of a dice. Uh, That's what I'm saying. Um, There's been there's a a lot underneath these stories, Um, and if you look more closely inside Britain and inside France in the late 18th century, you actually see very different kinds of economies, very different kinds of societies. Ones that were going to be very helpful for Britain to streak ahead both industrially and on the kind of the global power stage. And we're going to make it very hard for France to do that. This is great. Okay. Uh, so there's been no, so you haven't given Tom a chance to do his Melvin Bragg shouting, which is good. So we're going to take a break and then we'll come back and we'll go a bit granular and we'll talk about ordinary people and how the Industrial Revolution changed their lives. So see you after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Time, I think, for a bit of Dickens. On every side and as far as the eye could see into the heavy distance, tall chimneys crowding on each other and presenting that endless repetition of the same dull, ugly form which is the horror of oppressive dreams, poured out their plague of smoke, obscured the light and made foul the melancholy air. On mounds of ashes, the strange engines spun and writhed like tortured creatures clanking their iron chains, shrieking in their rapid whirl as though in torment unendurable and making the ground tremble with their agonies. So that's Charles Dickens in the old curiosity shop in 1841. And shockingly, he's talking about the black country from which uh, my forebears come very very sad scenes to see in uh, mine too. about the, Dominic, just about the West Midlands. Just well, that's why we speak in these kind of very yeah. strong kind of West Bromwich accents, <laughs> um, isn't it, uh, Tom? It is, right, yeah. so Emma, Emma Griffin, top historian, the top historian, president of the Royal Historical Society, um, is with us talking about the Industrial Revolution. Emma, Eric Mercer has a question, and he says, was Dickens' portrayal 
of English society in the Industrial Revolution, specifically, I suppose, the poverty and the costs of the Industrial Revolution, was it accurate? And I suppose that goes to Dickens, to some extent, has created our image, certainly the 19th century, as kind of extremes of wealth and poverty, you know, clanking machines, chimneys, misery, urchins, all this Blackness. stuff. In the air, yeah. soot, yeah. dirt. But yeah. is that? But Sus- you said right at the beginning that it was, the Industrial Revolution is about going from scarcity to plenitude. So is the is the Dickens view unfair? Would you say? Well, lovely question, Eric, and thank you very much for it. What um, what do I make of Dickens and his interpretation of the Industrial Revolution? Okay, so there's lots there's there's lots to say. I always have a lot to say, and I guess this is no exception. Let's think <laughs> yeah. about some of the things that's going on there. Well, one of the depictions that um, Dickens gives us is of pollution and dirt and smoke and grime. I'm happy with that. I think that's right. These Victorian cities were dirty and smoky and dark um, in some respects. And what was our Industrial Revolution about? Our Industrial Revolution was all about coal. Coal is dirty, it is smoky. I think there's a, there's a lot of truth in that. And other nations, even when they industrialise with cleaner fuels, it always upsets the the environment. There's always environmental damage. When you start producing much, much more stuff than you actually just need to keep you fed and clothed and shod, um, you're going to make a lot of mess. And that's kind of a, a feature of industrial industrializations, industrial revolutions. So I'm happy with that. Take that from Dickens. What else? What else? He's saying, the other thing I think we get out of Dickens is this sense of loss, that it was kind of nice before, it was clean and pleasant and it was nice. I mean, I think he, he, he very much buys into, like a lot of Victorian commentators, buys into the fact that the modern world is difficult and dirty and hard um, and the old world was cleaner and purer and happier. That I don't buy, um, partly because I think actually um, pre-industrial life is really, really, really hard and that's never fully acknowledged. It's really hard. Um, It's back-breaking work. I mean, none of us want to go back to living in that kind of world. There's very little um, intellectual um, fulfillment or interest in that kind of uh, for most people you have to go hungry a lot of the time you don't have shoes or your children certainly don't have shoes even if you manage to have shoes it's uncomfortable um, it's cold in a place like this a lot of so so I, I don't buy I don't buy that it was nice and clean um, before it was really difficult before and then it was difficult with the industrial revolution but it was a different kind of difficult um, so- would you rather have been a peasant or a member of the proletariat? Exactly. I mean, who has so, it better? Exactly. So that's the question to ask. And Dickens isn't very well placed to ask, ask or answer that question because he was neither peasant nor proletariat. He, like almost all of the commentators who wrote about the experience of living during the Industrial Revolution that got published and who now form part of our kind of cultural understanding of the period... He was not actually a worker himself. I mean, I know he but had he, he in his own case. He had, he had a... experienced some child labour, but certainly he had experienced some child labour. But he's not exactly. Um, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. He's not really. By the time he's writing his novels, he's you know, and, and even as I mean, the reasons for him experiencing the child labour were slightly unusual compared to those for the, the kind of the rank and file. Yeah, it's of... only because his dad's in debt, right? It's exactly. not because he's slightly born different. into a family that are doing that all the time. Exactly, slightly different story. So um, so th- th- that's the question to ask, which was better? Well, for me, I think um, I would strongly suggest that I think being a member of the proletariat is better than being... Um, and we want peasants, just to clarify as well. Uh, uh, the grandparents of children working and the adults working in the 
um, factories in the 19th century hadn't been peasants. They'd been agricultural labourers. So they'd been workers, um, but they'd worked on somebody's farm instead of working in somebody's factory. Maybe the peasant life is better, but we have to go in England, we have to go hundreds of years back to find lots of peasants. Um, we just, you had the choice of working for a farmer outdoors, in the cold, in the rain, digging up t fields and laying turnips. It's not thrilling work or going and working in the factory. And so those are your options. And, and when you look at the, the, the life stories, the autobiographies of men, mostly who have done one or the other, the, the answer is very, very clear. Um, it's much better to go and work in the factory. And there are lots of reasons for Which that. Which is presumably why people go and do it. The evidence speaks for itself. People go and they don't tend to go back. They don't go, discover what it's like, and then head straight back as fast as they can. They go and they stay. They go, they get higher wages, and a lot of people like earning more money. Um, so there's the higher wages, which is a real draw. But it's not just the higher wages. I think that's not the real lure of, of urban life. It's just life in the city is more varied. It's more interesting. It's got more opportunities. Um, and having that bit of extra wage is quite empowering for the men who earn it. So you can actually start to make decisions with your life. You can decide to learn to read and write. You can take yourself off to night school. You can get involved in politics. Um, you can be a somebody in your community. You can be a leader in the union. You have, not everybody does this, but you, you have opportunities that are just not open to you when you are employed on the land. Emma, you, you mentioned men there. We've got a question from Flea. How did the Industrial Revolution change women's lives? Did they gain more independence? I mentioned men because um, most of the sources that we have written about the Industrial Revolution have been written by men. Um, and I've looked at a lot of them and I think that story is quite clear and quite strong and it stands out, you know, it, it kind of, it, it stands, stands up to scrutiny. We don't have women telling us what it was like for them. So it's much harder to, to write that story and to be sensible there. What do I think going on? Well, I, I think I used to be a bit more positive about how it impacted on women's lives because young women certainly do start working in the factories. And if women are working in the factories, they earn quite a good wage. And that's quite empowering for them with respect to their family, whether it's their parents or their siblings or their husband. If they can earn a decent wage, that is quite empowering for them. However, um, women sooner or later are likely to get married and to get pregnant. Um, and then you've got the responsibility of raising children, which isn't something that you can do in this world where you haven't got electricity and you haven't got that much money um, and do a 12 or 14 hour day in the factory as well. So most women, even if they have this little window in their life where they have high wages and a bit of autonomy that comes with that, it is just a really small window. And then before long, um, they're back in the home and they're doing unpaid work. Um, and there's nothing very liberating about that. For am women, I so right in thinking that, that the process of industrialization in the early stages destroys a lot of the work that women had in kind of cottage industries? I think um, it does destroy um, women's work, it, or it can do. I mean, it certainly is, you know, it's undermining women's work. But for me, I think it's more, it's not so much that they're, um, it's, it's undermining the work opportunities that are available for women, because the work opportunities that had been available, were, I mean, I would say the same about those as I would about the, the mm. work that was available to men. It was pretty rubbish, really. Really long hours, <laughs> really low pay, uh, repetitive, not particularly enjoyable, not very empowering. So I don't think it's the loss of those opportunities 
you know, I, I don't think they're devastating for women. I mean, okay, so you could have spun at your wheel and made a little bit of money, but it was pretty boring spinning at wheels yeah, and you didn't make different. a lot of money anyway, so whatever. What What is significant about those earlier households is the work that you did had value within the household and that gave you a little bit of a... a it gave you some a space inside the family hierarchy. It gave you some importance inside the family. And when we move to kind of the modern world where men go out and earn a good wage, quite a big wage and an, incre- an improving wage, then the work that women does becomes less value, but becomes of less value within the household. So for me, that's really the switch that's happening. More than the loss of work, it's the loss of, it's the loss of status inside the family. Let me ask you about a different group, Emma, that you talk about in your, because you've got your, brilliant book liberty's dawn which is the sort of story of the industrial revolution through ordinary people who've written memoirs and things and you have a section in that if i remember right about children and am i right in thinking you say the industrial revolution was a disaster for children or something like that and you talk about people there's some story about a guy who's working you know 14 hour days on saturdays or something like that. I, I can't remember the exact details it's sunk i mean it is a brilliant book but it, i have to confess it is some years since i read it so children i mean they're the that that goes back to dickens it's the image we have in the industrial revolution kids i mean horrible histories when they sing their song about the whole of world history they say kids down factories and kids kids in factories and down mines um that's a pretty big cost isn't it i mean for of the industrial pretty big downside Yes, I know. I'm very happy to. I'll give you the children. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna point you on the children. <laughs> okay. I, I I couldn't agree more. Um, children tended not to work before the industrial revolution very much because there wasn't very much work around for them, and children also tended to go hungry a lot because non-working people couldn't use you know, in many you know many parts of society couldn't really be fed properly either. So there's a lot of child hunger. Um, there's a lot of extreme poverty and there's not much work. So work is viewed as the solution out of the problem of raising children. And it wasn't really available in rural England most of the time, as much as people wanted it to. Factories come along, great. You could put your children in the factory. You've got long hours, steady wages. And what these families are doing are feeding their children much better. I don't think... Um, I don't know which is better and which is worse. I mean, neither is good. Going hungry is not good. Working in factories is dreadful and is awful as well. I don't know, you know, so it's all bad. It's all really bad. Um, But when it comes to it, the long hours in the factory seem to be, seem to me to be even worse than not having enough food, Um, more damaging to a child's well-being, more damaging to their, their, their health, their well-being their development in every single way. So I think it's just an unmitigated disaster. I do think it's not a mitigated disaster I mean, for children. The lesson from Dickens is you need to find a benevolent patriarch, don't you, to <laughs> kind of take you under his wing. And yeah, give you, or a convict. Give you or like a, a convict yes, or a to go to Australia and yeah. leave you loads of money. But it is, I mean, it's, it, it is kind of guess telling that so many plots revolve around a, a hungry, starving child who then gets adopted by, you know, by magic, taken into the the kind of the world of the bourgeoisie. And I guess that the bourgeoisie are the other side of the coin. So presumably they are getting rich in a way that no class of society has got rich before. Yes, they are getting rich. Um, yeah, they are. They, they are. I mean, you know, I think even you, you look at the your average middle class family in the Victorian period, they have extraordinarily little compared to what we expect to have today. 
they never waste food. If you look at the size of the plate they're eating off, they're just, you know, mm. slightly bigger than a side plate. Tapas. Um, yeah, it, it is. That's how they're eating. Um, but they're doing better. They're definitely doing, definitely doing better. And so far as we can tell, if you look at kind of economic growth and wage growth in the 19th century, it seems to suggest that the economy is getting richer and wages are improving, but not as much as the economy is growing. So that does suggest that those at the top Element, you know, the top echelons of society are, are enjoying more of the profits that are being made than working people. Okay, well, this is a question that, that Dom, I'm amazed Dominic hasn't brought up as, as our leading left-wing historian. Um, and it's a question from Diogo Morgado, who asks, could Marxism have arisen without the Industrial Revolution? Concepts like class struggle don't necessarily require industrialization. The proletariat is a 19th century concept, is it not? So actually quite a lot of the isms that emerge over the course of the 19th century presume you know we, we trace them back to the french revolution but we could equally trace them back to the industrial revolution Is, would that be right oh i couldn't agree more i i absolutely agree with that interpretation so we have tended to look at movements like the rise of chartism in the british case but all across these all across europe we have tended to look at these movements as having been born out of inequality poverty unfairness and that is all true of course there was poverty and there's a lot of unfairness but it's very difficult to see how 18th century Britain could have sustained mass working class political movements although there were a lot of really poor working people in the 18th century they couldn't group themselves together around a common cause and they couldn't agitate effectively they didn't have the resources the, the mechanisms, the, the, the education, the literacy, the skills that would be necessary to make a powerful intervention, a political intervention. And one of the really interesting stories of the 19th century is working class people start to organise themselves. They view themselves as being important and significant. They learn how to coalesce around political causes. They learn how to take political action. They take really effective political action, mass rallies and published newspapers and um, political manifestos and charters. Um, it's all born, I mean, it's born out of progress. And I, I would love to suggest that we could kind of turn around that this is kind of born out of desperation and actually view it as what it is. It's only relatively, it's a relatively advanced and privileged working class or kind of working people who have the resources to articulate their message. And I think it's no accident that it is in um, 19th century Britain, where the Industrial Revolution is happening, that you get a lot of working people starting to articulate a message and that that develops and grows all through the 19th century, spreads across to other parts of Europe as other parts of Europe start to industrialise as well. Well, obviously, Marx and Engels, are, I mean, they're writing about Manchester a lot, aren't they? I mean, they're absolutely, exactly. you know... Marxism is completely overshadowed by that experience, isn't it? Yeah. Do you not think, Tom? I mean, you're I... going to say it's all about Christianity, I know, so let's not even go there. Well, Marxism, obviously, <laughs> yeah, it's just, of course it's Christianity. Um, but but I was, um, what, what I was actually going to ask was, was um, 1848, the year of revolutions across continental Europe, Britain doesn't have a revolution, even though there's this kind of great chartist demonstration, meets at Kennington and everything. Um, why do you think that is? Do you think that you reach a certain plateau of, of wealth across society and then actually it's less likely you're going to have a revolution? Uh, I don't know. I can't answer why we don't really have anything similar to what's 
you know, not really, we don't really have an 1848 revolution like a lot of Europe does. But I mean, I suppose, I mean, in the big macro, you know, kind of stepping back and, you know, looking at things from, from a bit of a distance, Britain has been different from a lot of continental Europe for quite a long time, mm. you know. And I think, again, this comes about, you know, it, it really was quite different. By the 18th century, it was already looking quite different. By the early 19th century, it's really changed beyond all recognition. Many of these um, European nations have not really, you know, they're just embarking. They only they really had an industrial revolution by 1848. So they're just they're just different kinds of nations, really, with different political setups, with different economic setups, and with very different issues um, that that just make kind of that kind of cross comparison quite difficult to to make. What do you make, Emma? We're reaching the end. We had a couple of questions about the legacy of the Industrial Revolution. So we had a really interesting one from Jack Vittles, um, who, very Dickensian surname, I have to say. Uh, he said, um, he, he, said um, he asks about the London Olympics and so on. And he said, you know, we romanticise the uh, Industrial Revolution. How much of it is tied up with the story that Britain tells about its progress, its own? And it's also, what's so interesting is asking that question after you've just talked about Britain being... I mean, you have slightly given a British exceptionalist answer to the last question. So, I mean, do you think the Industrial Revolution is, 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 it, is it still central to the way that Britain views itself and Britain's sense of its own, you know, its own exceptional history, unique destiny and all that sort of thing, do you think? Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, what I think was really interesting, well, I think there are two things. Uh, there's a number of things. I mean, I think there are things that we like to have in our understand uh, in our history of the Industrial Revolution, things that get left out. So I think there's been a lot of um, attempt for a long time to kind of put empire uh, and slavery in, and it's never really quite taken off. Um, and we've really always been much more comfortable thinking about Protestant worth ethics and um, technology and inventions. Um, I do think there's a big resource story. We needed to get our... Our, our raw materials, our resources from somewhere. And actually that does lead us out back to empire um, and it leads us out to warfare. So I, I, I'd love to bring that in and make that much more part of the story. I mean, and historians, academic historians are definitely always saying, look, I think it needs, we need to consider this, but I don't think that reaches the um, oh, well, London Olympic ceremony, that kind of, um, that, that doesn't make it into things like that. And I think that is fantastically interesting. I love that ceremony. I've been looking at it again recently for reasons of my own. Um, such an inter interesting um, interpretation of our national past. And of course, the I love the, and when it came out, I couldn't believe it, but, you know, seeing it for the first time, like, oh my <laughs> God, this is what I do. Yeah. This is all the Industrial Revolution. Look at that. <laughs> what I think is also Were really... Were you surprised by that, Emma? Were you surprised I by it? Cause... I was really surprised. I mean, I shouldn't have been, and I, but I just didn't know what our, I, I wasn't very familiar actually with the Olympic opening ceremonies. I didn't really quite know what it was going to be. Um, but everybody said, look, watch it. And I think David put it on and said, yeah, that's my husband. They, we, we, we should watch this. I'm like, okay, let's watch it. Um, and there it was, my work suddenly all in front of my eyes. Um, but anyway, that's by the by. What was what I love about it is, is it does kind of capture how we view well, our past, but also the Industrial Revolution. And it's not entirely, I mean, it's, it's got that kind of green fields, pleasant green fields, then the dark and the dark and the smoke, the Dickensian Industrial Revolution. And it's not entirely celebratory. Um, I mean, it's there and I love the fact that it's there because it is so important. But if you look at the faces of the workers as they're mm. kind of doing their kind of simulations of their working, they've all got 
sad faces and they've got smoke on oh. their face um, and it's grim and it's not nice. You'd like them to be contemplating their rising wages, would you? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, but, and I think that's interesting. Why Why we as Britain, I mean, it came me away from the, from the Olympics. I think as a nation, we find it very hard to, to celebrate the Industrial Revolution. We find it very hard not to be ambivalent about it. So there is this pride in it. But there's also this ambivalence about it that we have. it, And it's very interesting when you look at other nations talking about their process of industrialisation. When they start to industrialise, they're just thrilled. It's amazing. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's the best thing that ever happened. And we have so much chest beating that goes on about whether it was good and whether it was bad. Presumably be- be- because we're the first. And so Presumably. it's much more of a trauma for us. Yeah. We, have, we have no way of comparing. And is, I mean, it's been a kind of abiding... It was a kind of an abiding critique under the Thatcher government, wasn't it? That um, we've basically industrialists become very successful and then they go off and study useless things like classics and yeah. build country Absolutely. homes and things. And we de-industrialise. Yeah. So do you think yeah. that, that, I mean, there have been costs for being the first? Definitely. And I mean, it's why it's good to go back to people like Dickens. I mean, he is part of our cultural heritage. He's part of our DNA. Um we it's very hard if you're raised on that kind of interpretation of your history which we kind of are whether we like it or not it's quite hard then um as mature adults in our 30s 40s or 50s to say oh no it was great i mean it just has become part of our dna part of our narrative um, and it's very hard for all of us to separate from it we've got one last question which i know you'll enjoy from imagining history um and imagining history says (laughs) Why is the Industrial Revolution so interesting, but was so boring to learn about at school? What's all that about? And he's not wrong, yeah. actually. It is quite boring at school. I hated the Industrial Revolution. What is that about, Emma? What, are we teaching it wrong? Or is it just... It is so interesting. I, I mean, know. It, it, it was... I, and it was so boring at school, wasn't it? I mean, gosh, couldn't agree more. What were they doing in the 70s and the 80s with the Industrial Revolution and schools? Yeah, is I just still, remember is that. Is it still boring? And well, still, I don't know. I mean, I... I think everything they do at school, they do much more interestingly now. And I love the way they teach history in schools um, nowadays. I mean, I think I think almost a lot of the history I taught was really boring. Not just the industrial revolution. I think most of the history was really boring. Um, and I love the way they teach history in schools now. And they encourage people. You know, they teach about the First World War, um, and then they get the students to read some letters of somebody who was in the trenches and to think what it was like to have been in the trenches which is the bit that we didn't do in our day but now how do they teach the industrial revolution do you know well i mean some of them teach the industrial revolution with liberty's dawn which is amazing that's yeah they've got the book tom yeah they've got well interesting i've seen lesson (laughs) plans where they give um their students an extract of an autobiography and say let's think about the industrial revolution from this perspective um so i, I mean it's I think humanized it, haven't it's they? humanized I mean, it was... and i guess it's what's happened all through the teaching of history in schools which was very top down there's a lot of humanizing all and i think it's wonderful what they do um, so it's not just waves of inventions which i no, not anymore kind of, i think oh, the trick so it, for imagining history, I think the trick is to go back to school because schools nowadays are very different places and they're doing a much better job. Just amazing teachers doing a, just a fantastic job of making it um, lively and interesting. So That's a brilliant note on which to... As are the academics. Um, yeah, as, are the, as is the president of the Royal Historical <laughs> Society. Um, Emma, thank you so much for coming on the programme. Nobody ever again 
will have the right to say the Industrial Revolution is boring because you've comprehensively proved it isn't. Emma's book is Liberty's Dawn, if you're interested. Um, and if you're not interested, it's still at Liberty's Dawn. So you should buy it anyway. <laughs> um, thank you, Emma. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.